you want to follow along in your Bibles, Mark chapter 2, looking at, uh, for some who've who've read the Bible a lot, you you probably know this story, if not, it's it's a really good uh, account, and uh, I try to use the word account more than story, because I know when we use the term story, we think of once upon a time, and fables, and that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a historical account that uh, makes sense. Uh, So we're just going to pick up here, and we're going to read the first 12 verses, uh, and then kind of look through them. Um, He had just got done at the end of the chapter uh, healing someone uh, that he told, uh, ironically, to not tell anybody else, (laughs) and the guy told everybody else. So uh, he's kind of having to be in different, uh, kind of staying away from uh, the authorities already here. Uh, so he, he returns to Capernaum, verse 1. After some days, it was reported that he was at home, which most likely is Peter's home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening and let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Rise, your sins are forgiven, or say, Rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose immediately and picked up his bed and went out before them so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we have never saw anything like this. So you got Peter's house, more than likely, um, a house in Capernaum. Capernaum is on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. It was kind of, when we say Jesus' home, you have to kind of ask contextually, what do you mean by that? And, you know, that could be Nazareth, but it became Capernaum, kind of became his headquarters, just like as we talked about uh, a few weeks ago, that most likely uh, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha's house in Bethany was kind of his, quote, home or headquarters when he went to the festivals in Jerusalem. So they're in a house, and what's he there for? That's what we always say, and this is very clear in all the Gospels. What is the main thing he's doing? He's preaching the Word, you know, the Word, the, the Gospel, the, the, the things revealed by Yahweh to us, and that's what he's trying to do. That's his main purpose. It's been the whole time that way, and it will be throughout this Gospel. Um, but notice, this is true for almost all the healings. Um, there's an interruption. Uh, that's one of the things that... Uh, I know in my own uh, vocation, you'll get people say, well, I don't want to bother you. And I said, well, that's exactly what I'm here for, is to be bothered. Uh, I mean, I don't want to interrupt you. And it's like, well, again, that's kind of what we're here for, is to be interrupted. You know? And Jesus, you know, I don't know how he felt. It doesn't tell me. 
But he might have thought, you know, another one of these interruptions. But, he, you know, he's just trying to preach. You know, I was just wondering how that would be a little harder in this roof. Uh, we, if you, you know, you can do a Google on ancient Palestinian architecture if you want. Um, these were roofs that could get through a little easier. But I'm guessing if I was Peter, I would not probably be overly happy about the hole in my roof. Um, and different types of movies and shows that have shown this, you know, show it variously and trying to make it historically contextually. And so you could probably do it. W it would take a while. You have to get up on the roof. A lot of times they slept on the roof in the, uh, especially in the summers, in the cool of the night, it's cooler there. The air conditioning wasn't near as good as it is in here. Um, so if you can get that picture and do what you want with that, I always say in Bible studies, I've been saying it now in, in, uh, since we're going through Mark here in uh, sermons, that you know, if you can get your own movie in your head, what would this look like? You know, tried to do that a little bit with the kids. You know, what does Jesus look like? You can't get it right there, but just do the best you can. You know, uh, uh, I think that's one of the reasons God decided to make the written word and not like a, a movie for us that dropped down and revealed because we could we could imagine better. You can your mind gets used more when you're reading than anything else. Uh, and so uh, hopefully that helps. So you, you get these four men bring a friend who is paralyzed um, it doesn't necessarily say what's all paralytic, but it looks, it, he's a paralytic, so probably quadriplegic is what we're thinking anyway. Um, doesn't say how long. We don't get a lot of information about this. And, you know, uh, you can do your own math, I guess. We get what we need, but there's no room to get in. It's too crowded. And so they, they go through the roof. And Jesus says, or it says in the, in the context here, that he saw their faith. Uh, and that could mean a lot of things, right? Uh, we're going to see Jesus see something else here that's not apparent. Uh, does that mean he could, as the Son of God, by the Spirit of God or by his own spirit, be able to see the faith of these guys? Or he's just saying, boy, these guys really like this guy. They're tearing the roof off. Uh, I don't know which one it is. But look at the faith of the, they're bringing this guy to Jesus because they think he can do something for him. Um, it, you know, the, the faith of the paralytic is never mentioned. I don't know if it's supposed to be included in this or not. I, it doesn't say. Um, if I was going to guess, I would think that there was some faith there too because of what Jesus says to him because verse 5 is pivotal. Uh, I have, the version I have has red letter, you know, which I kind of like. It's the translator's call that this is Jesus talking. Um, you always have to be careful that it's not just the red letters you want to read. It just kind of helps us. Um, one wonders if it, half of the Old Testament shouldn't be in red letters because, it, you know, Yahweh speaks and Jesus is Yahweh, so maybe he's talking back then too. Maybe we could put that in green or something. I don't know. Uh, but when you see that, son, your sins are forgiven. Why does he start with that? It's interesting, you know, because you... Why did they bring him there? I mean, they didn't bring just the other friend that's walking fine. They br brought the one that was paralytic, you know. So it's, it's interesting the way you do but, but again, what we'll see if you really read this stuff, you don't even have to study it, but, uh, and I would encourage you to do that too. If you read this, what you find out is it's not hard to figure out what he's here for. And this is a very good account to help us understand this. He wasn't there for spiritual resurrection. It doesn't look like it. 
But that's where Jesus starts. You almost wonder, I, I do, my movie, it's my movie, I can do what I want. Um, what were they thinking? We don't know. But you know, you're one of the friends, you bring them in, or you're just kind of hanging out in the house, you listen to the word. And they bring this paralytic guy in, and Jesus, who you know has healed people, we've already got that in the first chapter, and they say this, your sins are forgiven, and you're kind of like, what do you say? Sins are forgiven. Hey. Still can't walk, though. What's going on here? You know, it, it's, it's a little odd, isn't it? And I think everybody kind of sees it that way. Um, it, it appears that Jesus is making an important point here. A lot of times what Jesus does has kind of a, a, a points to something greater. Sometimes they're like an enacted parable. He does that very overtly, like by cursing the fig tree right before uh, the week uh, uh, where he's crucified. It has a fig tree is a, was a metaphor in the Old Testament for Israel. And so probably something, but that really happened. And so he's kind of doing this too, I think. Remember last week, if you weren't here, you can uh, go on our website and look at that if you want, or the podcast. That we talked about what were the three main things that Jesus was doing with the miracles and the, and the uh, driving out of evil spirits. You know, it was to show his identity because he identified with the Messiah of the Old Testament, the, the chosen one the Christ. It shows him, it shows his authority because, you know, it's kind of like for military people, it's like, you know, he says to the demons, jump, and what do they say? How high, sir? He says, get out, they leave. It's not like, well, can we negotiate? You know, there's a little bit of negotiation a couple times, but it's really quick. Um, he has the power over this. Yeah, I think, that, and then obviously to show his compassion to the person. Uh, but this is kind of what, this is kind of paraphrasing, I think, of what he's saying. This is what faith in me will get you, forgiveness of sins. Which it seems like Jesus is thinking is more important than whether or not you can walk. You know, miracles are not the main thing. They never were. They're not supposed to be. They're signs. In fact, that's what they call them. Do a sign for us. Well, we got a sign down on the highway. It only took us two years to get it up there. DOT is really worried about signs on the highway, but you know, eventually we got one. Uh, but I don't. I, I guess we could go down there. You think anybody's worshiping down there? I got to the church. Here's the sign. To paraphrase a comedian, <laughs> here's your sign if you're still down there, right? You don't just stop there. It's pointing to something greater. It's the same thing with the miracles. Don't stop at those. You've got theologies out there to say if you're really, really, really faithful, you'll get all this power. But I certainly don't think they understand the gospel. I'm, I'm almost convinced they haven't even read it. Because you're not going to get that if you read through this with a, just with a commonsensical mind. They point to something greater. And all this is shown in the remaining verses. This is a really cool uh, dialogue between the leaders or how it puts uh, some of them were, were questioning uh, the scribes. These scribes would be people, sometimes they're called lawyers, they're essentially who know the Old Testament really well and be able to, uh, some of those were Pharisees, some weren't. Uh, so this is a, and this, this particular text is near and dear to my heart because when I went to my first Greek class in seminary, this was the text we used. 
And so I kind of, we really got into this thing. And, and I'm not going to, I was going to say bore. Bores are, you know, we don't, you don't need to know Greek. If you want to really get a flavor of the Greek and Hebrew, get more than one translation. Then you get like hundreds of scholars that did it this way, and another hundred of scholars that did it this way, and then another hundred. You, you can get pretty smart pretty quick if you do that. That's why we, I always encourage when you're studying, maybe look at more than one translation to see how it's translated to help you understand it better. But in verses 6 through 8 here, we learn some more about Jesus' natural abilities. These are Jesus' natural abilities. They're not yours. How this exactly works, and your translation may be different, but in verse 8 it says, And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they questioned within themselves. So they, they didn't say this stuff out loud. But Jesus knew it. It seems like he can discern what people were thinking. Now, I don't know if he could do this all the time. Um, I don't know if that, you know, because he's, he's now, he's God, but he's in the flesh. You know, that's our theology that the second person of the Trinity takes on flesh. That's what we celebrate at Christmas time, becomes incarnate, which means fleshed up. But how much did he still, he still had this ability, it looks like, or he's getting it from the Spirit. But it says his Spirit. So, now we can talk about that, and you guys, if you want to stay longer, I can get going if you want. We got a party, so we, gotta, we can't do that. Um, that's interesting to talk about. How did he do that? Is this the Holy Spirit? Is this him? Uh, what we do know is he can do it. And what we do know is you can't. At least not in your power, right? What am I thinking right now? I was thinking who the Cardinals were playing this afternoon. You probably wouldn't have guessed that. Jesus would have guessed it, I think. I think you would have known. We don't know this. We don't have this advantage. So how do we, what do we do? How do we know if somebody's truly faithful? He could see it, some. Well, Luke 6 helps us here a little bit. This is Jesus again. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now, this isn't always true. We can be deceptive. Um, and as they say, even a blind squirrel finds a nut sometimes. Even a bad person can have this. But in general, this will show itself. And this is one of the big problems. You see this in churches. You see this in families. If you're getting together with your family and friends for Memorial Day, we sometimes think we know a person's motive when they act, and maybe we don't. Um, I think you have to be careful in context. I mean, uh, if you're going down a dark alley in North Omaha at night and some guy with a knife's coming at you, you can maybe think the motive is bad. Because uh, I could say, well, I always think good motives. Well, in general, I think that's the way to do it. Uh, but what are we spo we're supposed to judge by actions. And I know we get that, well, no, we're not supposed to judge, which obviously is just silly. That's not what Jesus ever said. It's, it, make assessments. Let's go with that. You make assessments about your life. You all do that. You made an assessment whether you're going to come here today. You're going to make an assessment whether this was a good sermon or a bad sermon, right? That's okay. Do it. I, I think, you know, again, a tree is judged by its fruit. We're supposed to, and what we can get in trouble, and if, if there are any married couples here, you can probably have experienced this, where you think the, you think the wife or the husband, well, they're just doing that too. 
insert whatever, you know. Well, maybe they're not doing that too. I mean, I found out my wife didn't vacuum when I was trying to read and just to annoy me. Even though sometimes I thought that was the motive. Again, we have to be careful with this. Jesus knows other people's motives. And for the most part, let's go ahead and do that. Let's try to assume the motives aren't bad unless we find out they are. But consistently. Gets us in a lot of trouble. Uh, and I've been there, you know. So I think uh, God knows their heart, uh, but we can make assessments based on their actions. That's kind of what we, and that's what Jesus is kind of telling us here. But then he asks a question. So he perceives this. Then he turns to him. This had to be kind of interesting. In my movie, they're like, what? How did he know I thought that? I mean, that had to be a little discern, you know, disconcerting for him. It's like, this guy can read my mind. What am I thinking right now? Uh-oh. You know, this is, this is pretty good. Why do you question these things in your hearts? That must have just slammed them. Which is easier? I like that. That's, which is easier? True forgiveness or true physical healing? Which is easier? Which is easier for you? He's not asking which is easier for you, is he? He's asking which is easier for God or him. This is one of the places we see Jesus making a deity claim. He does this a lot. It's very overt in the Gospel of John, but it's very much there in the other, other Gospels too. Because what's the question? Who can forgive sins except God alone? That's what they're asking. He's blaspheming. And you know what he is if he's not God. But which is easier? You know, both of these are impossible for men and equally easy for God. Now, when you get to the book of Acts, you have uh, Peter a couple times, you have Paul a couple times. It's not very frequent, not nothing like nothing like this, where people are healed. Uh, but would we say that was Peter's power that did that, or Paul's? Do they have a natural power for that? You know, I mean, you can go to Omaha, and then they'll, you can go to certain places, and they'll get some stones and some sniffy stuff and some cool music. And they say they have some power. I mean, it's just like, really? Nobody ever claims that. Jesus didn't say that he needed anybody else's power. He had the power to do this. God does. God has the power to heal anytime he wants, and he's the only one that can truly forgive your sin and wash it away clean so that you're blameless. Nobody else can do that. If I sin against you, you can forgive me, right? But did this guy sin against Jesus? We don't even know if he sinned or you know, how it w worked out. But yet Jesus forgives his sin. Now, how would you like that if after the service you come out to shake my hand and say good sermon because you're supposed to do that? And I said, well, you're forgiven. Might not come back. <laughs> I don't have that power. I don't even know what you did. And I can't erase it. If you sin against me, I can, I can forgive you. That's reconciliation. But how do I, I can't reconcile you back to God any more than I can heal somebody. Any more than Peter could or Paul or John or anybody else. This is easy for God. God can heal anybody he wants. But that's not the main thing, is it? We see that here so clearly. So both of these are impossible for people 
but easy for God. Think about we had that 23-week series on heaven, which most of it was on the final heaven, when they're in the new heaven and the new earth and glorified bodies and no sin and no evil, great purpose, great meaning, great truth. Well, we need healing and forgiveness. No, because we won't get sick and we won't sin. Kind of cool. This is for this life, right? But he's claiming this power for himself, and he uses this term. We're going to see this a lot. And, and the little word T-H-E is very important here. The son of man, not a son of man. We're all kind of a son of man in a sense we're, we're flesh. The son of man, and the people who didn't like him grabbed this pretty quick. This comes from Daniel. He says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So who's this Son of Man he's talking about? Well, he's talking about himself, obviously, because he's just the one that said this. If you go back in Daniel 7, Daniel's a really cool book. You can, you can get the first six chapters are kind of cool. You got Rackshack and Benny getting burnt, but not, which is really cool. You got Daniel in the lion's den, but doesn't get eaten up. And then you get these visions he gets in chapter 7 and chapter 9 and chapter 11. One in chapter 7, he gets this in the vision, and I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. There's a vision he's having. And to him, the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus is claiming that for himself. And this guy, well, probably a bad way to say it, this God <laughs> has the authority to forgive sins. He has the authority to wash it away. I think he knew the guy's heart that there was repentance there, obviously. That's always, he said that in 15. It's repent and believe, you know. Turn away from sin toward, toward God. So he's, he's claiming the authority to forgive someone's sins. And if you want to do this, we can almost take out Ancient of Days and put in Father and take out Son of Man and put in Son because that's kind of what's referring to. And we pick this up and you get this throughout the Gospels. Je this is the main title that Jesus claims for himself. And when we get, okay, I'll go ahead and tell you. But when we get to the trial, and Jesus says, you will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. Caiaphas knows what he's talking about. He doesn't agree with him. This, this, this is his final execution statement. He's claiming to be not just the Messiah, but the Son of Man. doesn't take long in Mark for people to get ticked off at him. And then what about sins? You know, we talk about forgiving each other. We should do that. We even when we say the, the disciples' prayer, the Lord's prayer, we, we say that. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. But in Isaiah 43, it says, I, yes, I alone, says Yahweh, will blot out your sins for my own sake and will never think of them again. Nobody else could. This is probably the verse they're thinking of. And he's claiming this. It is blasphemy if he's not who he says he was. 
And then Psalm 51, I always like this. If you, if you, the Psalms sometimes are easily to historically contextualize, and this one is. This is after David had his uh, meeting with Bathsheba. After Uriah was sent into the front lines, Bathsheba's husband, so he would be killed. So David, who was a man after God's own heart and wrote a lot of the Psalms, committed adultery and murder, or at least second degree, all in one swell foop, as they say. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? So he prays. Now, who's he sent against? Well, Uriah and Bathsheba. Against you and you alone, Lord, have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. It's like, what? You alone? What is he talking about? If you read that in context, he needed to ask for forgiveness from Bathsheba. He needed to ask, which would have been a little hard, to ask forgiveness for Uriah. Uriah's dead. But the main thing he needed to do is get right with God because he had sinned. When we sin against each other, we also sin against the Holy God. And we need to ask for That's what This is so clear. Again, this is what Jesus says he gives us. And what in our culture we get so messed up with is that's the main thing. It doesn't make any difference. If you're well all your life, you have all the stuff you can eat, everything goes well if you are not reconciled with God. That's why Jesus came. And everything else we want from him, which he may give us and he may not, it's not promised, is to point us to what he really came for. So verse 10 is very helpful in framing the purpose of the miracles. That you may know. That you may know the Son of Man. Because anybody can say that. I could say that to y'all, right? Just say, hey, y'all forgiven. Go have some cake because I think it's out there already. But he, that you, I, I, what, what, what could I show you that I have that power? Say, anybody can say anything they want. But that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sin. I say to you, stand up and walk. It's a pointer. It's a sign. This is really, it's a good one to remember. It's not hard. Mark 2, 1 through 12. You, you read this, it gives you a very good idea what the miracles are for and what the main thing is. The miracle points to something greater, forgiveness of sins through Jesus. So I hope you get that. It's always good to come back to. And I know there's days when you find out there are people that aren't doing well and need healing, or at least we think they do, uh, that the forgiveness of sins is in, at the front of our mind. I, I understand that. And I'm just like you. There's times I just wish they would be healed and I didn't have to worry about all this stuff. But again, it's not the main thing. He didn't heal everybody, and this was always an interruptions. He goes to preach the word. That's what he's going out to do. And almost every time he, he heals people just because they won't quit coming to him, and he's compassionate, and it does show who he is. Then 13 through 17, he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowds were coming to him, and he was teaching them. And he passed by. He saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And Levi rose and followed him. 
And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Then Jesus heard it. One wonders if he heard it under the breath or if they actually heard it, given the other account. He said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So you got Matthew. This is the the writer of another gospel, one of the 12. If you want to see his picture, I've got a book. Uh, Levi is his, Matthew's more of a, a, a Hellenistic Greek name. Levi is the when it was one of the 12 uh, tribes. That's a good Jewish word name. A tax collector, he's called as a disciple. Now, I'm not going to get into this too deep. You probably heard it. But collecting taxes in the Roman Empire was a corrupt system. Uh, you kind of made your margin based on how much you could get, uh, as far as we know. There was a way to be upright, but most of them weren't. Uh, we don't know if Matthew was or not. I mean, we can make the case he was or he was not. Now, I know some people who watch The Chosen think he was autistic. I'm not sure of that. Although, if you get a chance to watch, I do think that's a, it's a really, I like the Matthew character there. And again, I'm not, t- you read the Bible, and that's all The Chosen or movies. That's all they're really trying to get you to do. Uh, if, you read, if you watch the show and don't read the book, we got a problem. Um, but, Matthew, I think, comes off really interesting. Most of that series is really about the interaction between Jesus and his, his disciples and the disciples and each other, which is really kind of cool. It's their movie, so they can do what they want. If you don't like it, make your own movie, right? Um, and there's no reason given for Jesus' choice here. It doesn't say, well, Jesus stopped because Matthew had the gift of writing and or whatever, or Matthew was autistic, or, you know, it doesn't say. I guess you just have to say, we can speculate, but why did Jesus choose Matthew? Do you think he chose wisely? I think so. We won't go down this rabbit trail, but do you think he chose wisely when he chose Judas? That's another question, isn't it? But we, we won't go down there. Not for another day. So Jesus has dinner at Matthew's house. You don't do that if you're a rabbi. Um, and other tax collectors who probably weren't believers in Yahweh. They reclined at table. This is an idiom. If you do this, that means you're accepting the people around you and eating with them, kind of eating together. So Jesus accepts these sinners as people that God cared about. Although from verse 17, we see that he realizes their need for repentance and forgiveness. You know, that's out there, that God will just love you where you are. Yes, but he'll love you too much to keep you there. That's always it. He wants, he wants not only to be reconciled to him through the forgiveness of your sins, he wants to empower you to do the things you've been gifted and talented to do in this life and to live a life eternally with him. It's not just get out of hell free card. It's a relationship. It's a connection with God and other believers. So, if God, the Spirit, is convicting you of sin, He's doing that because He loves you. 
If you're hearing, and I've known people that have had this, if you're hearing or getting tempted or hearing voices or however you want to put it, that you're not worth anything, that you send too much for God to forgive you, that is not coming from God. That is coming from either yourself or something evil. What you should hear is, you know, that's not right. But I'm here for you. I'll give you the power to overcome that. I'll give you practical reasons. I'll give you spiritual reasons. I will be there for you because I died for you. I created you, and you're mine. That's what you should, that's from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will never demean you as a person, but he will convict us of the things we do that are not of God. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He could have said, oh, I love you guys so much. Go out and collect more taxes. Cheat the heck out of people. Send all you want. He didn't, did he? Because he loved him too much. Somewhere along the line, we have to figure out that following God is a much more joyful, fun, fulfilling, eternal thing than not. Matthew here received a specific call. You can go back to last week to see. Everyone receives a general call. Follow me. You're getting it right now if you're not doing it. Follow Jesus. That's what the Spirit always, believe the gospel. Produce fruit, fruit in keeping with repentance. We'll get that in a couple weeks. The Pharisees and scribes rightly saw that others were sinners but wrongly assessed themselves as righteous in God's eyes. In Romans 3, it makes a transition and starts to show us Christ. And it says, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. All have turned away. They're talking about we can't save ourselves. And later in the chapter, he says, everyone has sinned and fall short of the glory of God, including these scribes and Pharisees that are looking down their nose at other people. Yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of sins. We all need that, and they had to know that too. Remember, John the Baptist was telling everybody to get baptized, not just the bad people. So the crowds, they continue to seek Jesus, the crowds are big. The disciples still see Jesus primarily as a teacher, but that's starting to change. We're going to see that as we go. We essentially are a fly on the wall watching these guys figure out who he is. He's going to continue to miraculously heal, but he's going to persistently preach and teach what his real purpose is, which is to be that physician, spiritual physician for the spiritual sickness that we have in forgiving our sins. Let us pray. Father, as we ponder this event of a man coming through a roof that couldn't walk and the, the wonder of being able to give him uh, ability to walk and move his hands and his feet and everything, uh, what a wonderful miracle, but yet we see so clearly that that's not the main thing. This man uh, is not with us now because he got sick and he died and that happens to us all. The healing is not permanent in this life, but the healing of our souls is. May we always remember that forgiveness of sins is the main thing, which truly means being reconciled back to you, Father, through your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.